Hello, and welcome to the Law of Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by our managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So today we're going to be talking with Sarah M. Broom. She's a journalist, writer, with many accolades. Her latest book is called The Yellow House, and it is a combination memoir, archival research, history of her family, and a story of her growing up in New Orleans East a really moving and beautiful book. It is. It is. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. I love books about places. You do? I do. Yeah. Because I'm, that's, I think that's how my brain is oriented. Around place? Uh, to some degree. Yeah, I think so. What do you mean? I mean, I think I'm really interested in like cities, places, less, I mean, I like stories about people too, but I, I think I'm interested in like the collective story of a place and the kind of like non um, non narrative story mm-hmm. of place a lot of the time, just like descriptions, how things work, where things are situated. Even though I'm t- so yeah. bad at geography <laughs> <laughs> or, or directions or anything, I'm so I don't I'm not like I uh, manage place very well. Yeah. But that does seem. I mean, it's kind of is the foundation of everywhere. Like some something needs to take place somewhere. So that's where I always think of. I seem to gravitate towards that. Uh, When I was reading Sarah's book, I went to Google Maps to try to see, do that thing where you drop the person in. This is a very bad description of what Google Maps, but I think (laughs) everybody knows what I'm talking about. Most people know what that is, yeah. Okay, yeah. And you kind of can walk around the street um, because I really wanted to to visualize. And when we got on the phone with her, I really wanted to sort of just ask her to drop us into New Orleans East to get a Uh sense of what this place was like. So I, I think I agree with you. I think this like a sense of place is really is can be really important. Yeah. To our understanding of what goes on there. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And and that, and this book does that very well. Um, yeah. We were saying we've both been to New Orleans. I don't think I've been to this neighborhood in particular, but I have a sense. Of, I think I have a good sense of of what it might be like after reading Sarah's book and speaking with her. Me too. So let's yeah. should we listen to that conversation? Let, let's do it. Okay. Our guest today is Sarah M. Broom. Sarah is a writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Oxford American, and O Magazine, among many others. A native New Orleanian, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, she earned her master's degree in journalism from the University of California, Berkeley. Her new book is called The Yellow House. It's a memoir, history, research combination into Broom's family, the often forgotten neighborhood New Orleans East, the effects of Katrina on her family and the house she grew up in, the eponymous Yellow House. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Sarah, I wanted to start off talking about the neighborhood where you grew up, New Orleans East. Just for listeners who aren't familiar with it, maybe you could paint us a picture of what it looks like, where it is in relation to the New Orleans that people might know more about, and how your family came to live there. Sure. So New Orleans East is seven miles from the French Quarter, about a 12-minute drive. So seven miles from the French Quarter, about a 12-minute drive. Uh, To get to the east, you go over a bridge that locals call the High Rise Bridge. And that bridge brings you over the Industrial Canal, which is a sort of navigation channel that connects Lake Pontchartrain and the Mississippi 
But the Industrial Canal is quite crucial to the story of New Orleans East because it actually bifurcates the East from the rest of New Orleans. So it lends it a kind of cut-off feeling. And that was certainly the feeling I had growing up there. My mother moved, bought a house in New Orleans East in 1961 when she was 19, and that's the yellow house. When she bought it, it was actually a green house. And we all grew up there. And so the East was the way we understood what it meant to be New Orleanian. Even though the East is not what most visitors think about when they think of New Orleans, because it's, you know, rather, it's funny, I always want to say flat, even though all the rest of New Orleans is flat. But I think what I mean is that it doesn't have the sort of obvious drama and charm that the rest of New Orleans has. You know, there are no streetcars. There are all of the sort of signifiers of what it means to be in New Orleans, the street lamps and people walking around and making noises and music in the streets. It doesn't really exist in New Orleans. It's a much more suburban feeling place. And there are parts of it that feel just straight up desolate. And at the time, it was the largest tract of land ever sold to a developer in the United States. Is that right? Yes, yes. The portion of New Orleans, the New Orleans East actually gained its name in a kind of business deal. So in the late 50s, a company was formed that was actually called New Orleans East Inc. And that company bought an enormous piece of land. And that land, which is far east and was not technically the neighborhood that my mother bought her house in, but all of the area of the east, whether or not we were part of that deal, that business deal, that development plan, came to be broadly known as New Orleans East. So it's strange, actually, because there are people in the east who had called themselves other names, like Pine Village or Plum Orchard, for instance. But suddenly we all sort of fell under this business moniker. This might be an odd request, but when you picture New Orleans East in your mind, what does it look like? Well, it's hard for me to picture New Orleans East without imagining the long stretch of Chef Mentor Highway. So that's like a four-lane highway, two lanes in each direction, sort of running through the whole thing. With a really incredible Uh, name. Yeah, it means chief liar. It's translated into chief liar, and it's just flat, and along Chef Mentor are auto part repair stores and bodegas and gas stations and used tire shops. So it has this totally industrial feel. And the East is sort of spread out. So lots of apartment complexes, squat, one-story houses, none of them colorful, really. And, you know, a bit gray, really, all told. And this book, it's a multi-generational story. And you begin with your grandmother. How did you choose that starting point? Why do you begin with your grandmother? And, and you really inhabit her, I think, as a character and a person in this book. How did you choose her? 
Well, my grandmother was always fascinating to me. I was interested in this book and thinking about the idea of name calling. You know, when people, mm-hmm. because New Orleans has been called all these various names, like land of no return, no man's land. It feels like name calling, like in school when someone calls your name and yeah. you sort of went, you know. Mm-hmm. And so my grandmother was sort of the opposite example in this intriguing way in that she decided as part of this great community of women, this very matriarchal community of women who renamed themselves, whatever name they had been given, they decided upon a new name, a nickname or some variation of their name. My grandmother did this in that she was born Amelia, but she decided that everyone should call her Lolo. And everyone did call her Lolo, including her own children, even when they were quite young. And so my grandmother was intriguing to me, and I wanted to situate her as a New Orleans person and native and talk about the way she was geographically planted in the city and the way in which she gave my mother something which became invaluable, which was this love of place, this love of home. She knew how to make a place, even when she rented a place. She painted it, and she bought beautiful things. She collected beauty, and that was the thing my mother inherited in some deep way. And so I felt that the typical memoir, which would begin probably with me in the first person, was not actually true to how I think of my own life and my own existence as being a story that actually begins long before I was on the planet. My grandmother was the beginning for me. And I think that's also interesting because you're the youngest of a very, very large extended family. So you're the 12th child. Mm -hmm. Sure. So it's true that you do bring us through, you know, your mother's many births. Before we kind of get to you as more of a character, we are learning about who came before and how your mother, how she met her first husband and then how she met your father and all the children in between. What was it like to approach your family in a very focused, reported way? In the beginning of the book, you're talking with one of your siblings and they kind of say like, they wish you wouldn't uncover the stories that you're looking Mm -hmm. for. And I know you have a background as a journalist. So I'm wondering what was it like to approach a family that you really wanted to you know, get certain secrets out and know about. And everyone in this book has a voice too. It's not just you, you have your siblings. We hear from them, we hear from your mother. So what was that like just as a writer to work like that? It was tricky. I thought of myself partly as a journalist, but understanding that I could have no objectivity, it was impossible. But then also in a way as a kind of ethnographer. An ethnographer, because I'm part of the sort of scene that I'm observing in a way. And then the journalism gave me a great level of detachment. So there were moments when, because I recorded hundreds of hours of interviews with every sibling, and then I cross-checked them with other people. And so there were moments when I think my family felt that, you know, that what they were telling me was not for the public consumption And I think they saw me in a way as the public. And so I would spend a lot of time convincing them that this was also my story and I needed to know. 
but I think making it into the book after the fact, transcribing all of the interviews, which I mostly did so that I could hear the sound of them and really let them live in my head. And then making that into a story was immensely tricky. And I'm still to this day nervous about what it means that I recorded their stories in this way. How so? You know, it's quite exposing. And I feel deeply that my work is to use my specific story to refract on these great, great big things. Things like how cities take care of their citizens, things like climate change, things like geography and mapping, things like the ways in which social injustice is literally baked into the soil for most Black people and people of color in this country. And so those are like my big ideas, right? But I'm also exposing people who I love so much and who are also alive. Was there a particularly touchy aspect of your family history that people really didn't want you to include? Well, it's funny. I think when something is yours and your history, things that seem banal to someone else can be extremely touchy for you, right? So, for instance, a good example is that no one wanted to remember how Karen, my sister Karen, was hit by a car on Chef Mentor. You know, it was too terrifying to think about. People didn't want to recall the details of my father dying. This moment, there's a detail, which is a very specific detail, about my father coming home the night he has an aneurysm in the yellow house, coming home. And people had told me that story forever. He came home, he went to the bathroom, he had an aneurysm, right? I heard that about a thousand times. But after many, 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 many interviews, someone said, yeah, and the thing was, he had brought us Popeye's chicken, spicy. And I was like, holy shit. And then someone else said, yeah, and he had a bottle. The thing that I'll never forget is that he had a bottle of old granddad which is a bourbon, and it burst on the pavement before he came in. So there was this sort of drama to the moment, and I think it was uncomfortable for people to go that deeply back into memory. But it was the kind of granular detail that, for me, makes this story come alive, to think that this man dropped a bottle of bourbon outside and then comes inside and has a brain vessel burst. It's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, I think that dynamic between public and private, where often, at least I have found that the way to get information out of family members is for somebody outside of the family to ask them the questions that you have maybe asked them before or it had never occurred to you to ask them. And mm. that family is often somehow seeming more inclined to speak with somebody that they don't know in some ways. Mm. Was it the promise of the book? Was it that the book would be a testament to these stories? How did you carry those conversations on? Yeah. Well, first of all, I grew up with them, so they know if there's no one nosier on planet Earth than <laughs> I, this is not a new occurrence, right? Uh-huh. So you've been <laughs> asking really questions for a while. while. Yeah, my mother is like, she says, if I say I want ice cream, and she says, no, not now, I say, but why not now? Why? Mm-hmm. Why? And so I'm just insatiable, even with my friends. They're like, geez, don't ask another question, right? So I'm deeply curious in people. It's one of my favorite things on planet Earth to talk to people and try to get to know them. 
almost absolutely no different with my family. I'm more intrigued by them than a stranger. And I actually have an idea that if we all went home at Thanksgiving and actually deeply talked to our families, I mean, deeply, you know, not on the surface, but like actually asking questions and having real conversations that so much would be changed on a kind of national level, right? Mm -hmm. Because we would be passing things out privately and among each other. And now, of course, that doesn't happen very often. But I think with my family, the tricky part was being respectful of them. And I laid out in the beginning that I was writing this book. I didn't know what the book would become or be, but that I wanted to essentially spend a year interviewing all of them. And, you know, so I went around with the recorder over the year and then they came to sort of get used to it. And I think ultimately people want to tell their stories. Something I that I think is another element of it too is that the book kind of zooms into your family and then zooms out on the place where you grew up, New Orleans East, and you delve deeper maybe than just in a superficial memoir of someone kind of recounting their own personal recollections of a place. It seems as though you've researched and looked at a lot of primary documents. So I'm wondering how those two things related to each other in the writing process or just in your kind of thinking of the book, like as you learned more about New Orleans East history, as well as your own family history, did those things start to inform each other? Did you have more insight into both arenas because of the research in the other arenas? Yeah, they felt completely indistinguishable to me. So in other words, if I wanted to understand about my mother, I had a theory about most of my siblings. So like for my mother, my theory was that she's really this great artist. And that if things had happened slightly differently from her, then she would be some form of a visual artist or maybe even a poet. That was like my theory. And so, for instance, when my mother was talking about sewing and then she was talking about the ebony fashion fair, I went into the library and did all this research where I found these stories about the ebony fashion fair. And it helped me understand the character I was making of my mother. Mm. So like there's things she's telling me, but she comes from, is influenced by, and is sort of made by also a place which consists of people. And so it felt to me like the same piece of work. So I don't want to just understand my mother in this one dimensional way. I want to understand the world she lived in, the view from her window when she was growing up what her friends were like, you know, the type of human she became and how, what are the sort of small moments that made her that person? So a lot of that was in research, figuring that out and finding photographs of her and getting a sense of her essence beyond the things she was telling me and then talking to other people about her. So in a way, that's how I made her into something more than hagiography. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Sarah Broom, author of The Yellow House. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. (laughs) 
We have Taya Abrecht on the line with us today. Taya is a critically acclaimed novelist. Her first book was The Tiger's Wife, um, but her latest book is called Inland. It is also a novel. It's about the Old West. And Taya is here to recommend a book for us. Taya, what book are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend The Volunteer by Salvatore Scibona, okay. um, which came out earlier this year and absolutely blew me away. I mean, his narrative, his storytelling powers are just second to none, and, and the book is deeply, deeply, deeply moving. How did you find it? I have known uh, Salvatore for some time, um, mm-hmm. and I knew the book was coming out. I've been, been waiting for it for years, as, as everyone had, and then I had the opportunity to actually interview him about it when it came out. Um, and it was one of those experiences where, you know, you always hope that you're going to love the book of somebody you know, but I... I, I Loved it so, so much. Yeah, I read it over a space of two days, couldn't put it down. Wow. Okay, what's it about? Um, it's about it's about a young boy who is found speaking an unknown language at an airport. Mm-hmm. And it's about uh, family and family myths and the creation of identity and the secrecy of language and the power of language. Oh, that sounds really good. Okay, will you tell us the title again and the author? It's The Volunteer by Salvatore Scabona. Thank you so much, Taya. We've been speaking with Taya Abrecht. Her latest novel is Inland. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour we now return to our conversation with Sarah Broom, author of The Yellow House. One of the most uh, striking details to me about you know, your, your mother growing up was that she became pregnant. How old was she when she became pregnant with your, your oldest brother? I think she was 17, probably. And, and that she wanted to uh, go back to school, but the school wouldn't allow women who had had children to come back. Right. Yeah, it was a a new rule actually implemented the year she had her kid. And my mother to this day is not a person who asks for a lot of things, you know? And I think she doesn't ask because she doesn't want to be disappointed, which is also probably who I am on some (laughs) deep level. Um, And I understood her when she said, you know, when she went to the school official and they said, you know, you'll go to the school for messed up kids, but you can't come back here. And she was so deflated by that. As someone who loved to learn, she's still a more voracious reader than I am. She felt hurt on some deep core level and didn't want to sort of pigeonhole herself in the school with all the other girls with babies. I should ask her how she feels about that now. So something that I I thought was very beautiful is there's a part in the book where you talk about lying on your mother's stomach and her body was actually the safe space in which you grew up, but also that her body somehow was connected to the house. Mm. And, but a part of that intimacy between you and your mother, you follow that by talking about the deep isolation that the house engendered in you as a child. Where And you, you talk about, you know, a, f- a friend that you essentially had to break up with because 
She was wondering why she was never coming to your house, why she wasn't invited over, why you were so closed off to her. And you wrote these like anguished letters of which, yeah, which is very, which is very sweet and very precocious for a child. But also, can you explain that sense of isolation that, because it's born of intimacy in a way, it's born of this Mm -hmm. closeness with your parent, but you're also sort of taken from the world. Sure. Yeah. That is such a great question. I think those two are very interlinked, right? Because my mother, and that's why I take so much time describing how she was raised, because, you know, she was raised by women who were obsessed with detail, mm-hmm. okay? And they noticed everything. Nothing was ever lost on them. And so my mother would then be a person noticing every crack, every piece of rot, right? Every smell, every opening in a house. And I think my mother, because she's so deeply associated, she owned the house. It was the thing that belonged to her and that she also belonged to, right? It was a kind of repository for her. And I think she became, in a way, the physical house, meaning like it was hard for her to distinguish between, but if the house looks bad, don't I look bad, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that that was so deep-seated in my mother that somehow the house literally spoke for her, right? It sort of stood in for her, in a way, like almost erasing her. Mm. And I, I, for me, that is so much what shame is, right? Shame is, I think, a thing, a circumstance, an event literally stands in for you, mm. right? You are on the wall, so to speak, right? <laughs> like you're off the scene. And the moment, the incident, the thing that brings you the shame or, or instigated the shame is fully big and on the scene and standing in for you, right? And it took me a really long time to realize the anguish of, you know, when I started to understand that my mother is one of the most sociable, kind-hearted, want somebody to come over people, person on planet Earth, it, it made it sadder for me, right? Yeah. Because I thought, oh, my God, the ways in which she was, you know, as I say in the book, going against her nature, you know, that we were all going against our nature. And, and to this day, when I think about the house and my mother in the house and the ways in which the house really did become a presence for us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I say like 13th and most unruly child. But my mother put a lot of energy into dressing this thing and trying to keep it up. And of course, you know, ultimately it it doesn't quite work. But yeah, those two feel, it is intimate in that way. Well, I I wonder if you were instinctively protecting your your mom in that way. Because if if there are parts of the house that are exposed as there were, right, um, that Mm -hmm. there were unfinished sort of things that, there were wires, there were open walls, there were things that mm-hmm. had been patched up but were visibly patched up. So I wonder if there was also, you know, a sort of a protection over your mom as a child to protect her from the eyes of others, right? That 
the, an exposed house also meant an exposed mother, essentially. Well, yeah, that's possible. But I think in our situation, because we were always wanting people to come over, that was sort of the problem, you know, mm-hmm. um, that we wanted our friends to come. And then remember, people, some people did come, but they were people we really knew, like my nephews or, you know, like they already knew what was going on, right? So it was like an intimate, it was only for intimate. Right. As if intimates were the only group of people who could possibly understand. Yeah. Right. And yes, we were all together as a kind of unit protecting the, the secret mm-hmm. place. Right. Which was the yellow house in my growing up, because it's crucial to note that the house wasn't always, you know, a place to be hid for many of my siblings, you know, my sister was married in the backyard and had her wedding reception there. And, you know, it was for them a wonderful sort of middle-class house. Mm -hmm. And then your mother ended up having to take care of things, you know, on her own, right. And deal with all these children and go back to school. Yeah. And I think another thing in the, uh, I wanted to ask about part of the, what you talk about in the book is also that these lots that were sold in um, New Orleans East really maybe shouldn't have had houses built on them, that they were, the the ground was muddy and, you know, that the lots themselves maybe weren't really ideal building sites. And that in the end, um, your mother lost her house to Hurricane Katrina. But you also talk about another hurricane, Hurricane Betsy, that hit in 64, was it? 65? 65, yeah. Right, and that that a lot of the the catastrophic flooding that happened um, with Katrina also happened with Betsy. And that, that, you know, Lyndon Johnson was visiting, making these pledges that things would be changed and all these projects would be implemented to so that a disaster like Betsy would never happen again, but that actually something just about the way New Orleans was constructed made it very susceptible to hurricane damage and flooding. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that and if if that was something you knew before going into this book or did you find that out during your research, just this kind of man-made calamity? Yeah, so I think obviously, you know, a large majority of New Orleans is below sea level and this has always been a problem, right? And of course, there are certain neighborhoods like the French Quarter is actually generally pretty fine when it comes to flooding. And so the, the higher, the, what they call now the flood zone X, which means that they are higher grounds and a little more protected. So that's like the French board of the Marini, right? That we can attach, we know, a price tag to the, the higher ground. It's more expensive to live there. So New Orleans East is topographically lower than, let's say, the Lower Ninth Ward, which is an area a lot of people heard about, right, after Katrina. But what's interesting, so there's an enormous amount of subsidence there, but add to that climate change and the creation of so many navigation canals, right? There's one called, that was called, it's been closed since, but we called it Mr. Go, but it was like the Mississippi River Gulf outlet. And these were things that were allowing boats to pass more quickly to the port of New Orleans, right? But the the effect that they were actually having environmentally was eroding coastlines, 
right? Like destroying marshlands. All of these things are natural protective barriers, right? So then when a storm comes, this kind of erosion exacerbates storms, makes them much more powerful, allows them to kind of gain strength in in a kind of silo created by the navigation channel, right? So it's also that the man-made systems were also failing, right? And then, of course, in the case of uh, Katrina, the levees, which were federally built, just completely failed, right? They, they weren't up to standard. And so I think what's difficult for people to sometimes understand about this is how layered this whole thing is with so many sort of systemic injustices and just official negligence. How did you experience Katrina? So I was not there when it happened. I was in, I live in Harlem and I was here. And so I experienced it from a distance, just being worried and trying to figure out where my siblings were and, you know, just being in a perpetual state of anxiety. And then we all kind of, you know, were together shortly after the storm. I flew to California, and then we all, about a month after, got together in in New Orleans to bury my grandmother, who had died while being evacuated from a nursing home in Louisiana to Texas. Mm -hmm. And how was that reunion? One, yeah, might expect. um, Just completely devastating and despairing. Um, You know, we were feeling as if the landmarks of our lives were, a lot of the city was in fact still underwater at that point. And people were just getting a sense of the actual devastation. I I don't know that they had even, I think now they say more than 1,800 people died. But back then they were still counting the bodies and, Mm -hmm. you know, making the now famous infamous X's on the houses, you know? And so it was a flipped upside down world that it felt really hard to locate ourselves in. So that whole moment just felt like like this location, you know, like like you're misplaced in the world you used to know. Mm-hmm. And it sent me, I think, on a major quest. So there's the, the cliche that you can't go home again, but sometimes knowing that the house that you grew up in is there, even if you don't live there anymore, even if your family doesn't live there anymore, is, you know, is one thing. Um, Having the house gone, I wonder how that's changed your relationship to the city and to visiting New Orleans. And, you know, if you still, how often you go back at this point without those kind of anchors there. Your family, lots of your family doesn't live there anymore. I mean, what's it like to go back now? Well, now uh, a, a bunch of them, not all of them, but many of them have returned. Um, my brother Michael and my brother Carl, and they have always been anchors, and my mom is there. And so, you know, I, it's strange now because I think we've all, the Yellow House is like distant memory, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in some weird way. It's like, I think it's still very painful because of the way that the house went, which is that the city demolished it and none of us knew. And so my brother showed up one day and the house was simply missing. Mm -hmm. That part is more painful than knowing that the house needed to be demolished, right? 
it's the sudden absence, which of course makes it feel like death. So anything that is a sudden taking away, right, makes you feel thrust into grieving in mm-hmm. some way. And for me, certainly that has been the situation. But, you know, I go down there and if I'm going to visit my brother Carl, which requires I pass by the street where, where I grew up, I always try to stop and I say hi to um, Rachelle, who was my neighbor, you know, when I was growing up. And I, you know, hug her and catch up. And it's completely strange, mm-hmm. you know. But now, it, having lived with the house gone, is so much more a reality for us. If you have any thoughts on the Bahamas, but I don't know, it's such a such a dark subject. It seems to me it's a hard way to end the conversation. It's a hard, yeah. But if you would like to talk about it, more than happy to ask you the question. Well, I think I think the the only thing that I when I see natural disasters happening, even if it's like the fire that happened in Paradise, California, for instance, mm-hmm. I, I think of the people who are now displaced. I think of the stories that the houses would tell and and the connection that humans have to land and to the places where they build worlds inside. And so I'm always thinking about the displacement and what it means to be forced out of the context you've known for so long, you know? And and I know what those early moments, yeah, feel like. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. We have been speaking with Sarah M. Broom. Her new book is called The Yellow House. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking with us. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. 